0: Well, as I've been thinking about today's verse that we'll be unpacking, it brought to mind um, uh, what it motivates. Let me see if I can just unpack that a bit. Like this verse, you're going to see it in a minute. It's going to talk about the end times. It's going to have a reference to the last days. And I was thinking that, that that concept this idea of the last days, it's one of the reasons we are deeply committed to multiplying, to church planting, to, to sending partners, to making sure that you're equipped to share the gospel here locally and you know right around you, to make sure you know to keep investing your resources to and through your church, for getting the gospel to the nation, like all of that really. One of the motivating factors is because we know the Lord is returning. We're in the last days. We're in the end times. And so it motivates us. That's kind of one of the responses that we give to the fact of the end times and Christ soon return. However, not everyone responds in that way. Not every other response is wrong. Some are just maybe more hilarious. Um... I ran across a website this week in thinking about this idea of responding to the end times. It's called raptureready.com. What they do is they provide an index of about 45 items. You can see a few of them on the screenshot that I took. And they score these 45 items on a regular basis. And then the score they end up with is kind of called their rapture-ready indicator. And I think the point of the website is to kind of show you the amount of what they would call prophetic activity going on. Now, when they add the score up, then you compare it to their, uh, we can call it legend or index. Here's their scoring legend. 100 and below means there's slow prophetic activity. 100 to 130 means there's moderate prophetic activity. 130 to 160 heavy prophetic activity. If you get above 160, they say fasten your seatbelts. If you're curious about last week's score, it was 188. So in their opinion, we're in the fasten your seatbelt range. By the way, that's just one point below the all-time high of 189, which was back in 2016, That's well above the all-time low, which was back in 1993, 58. Now, theologically, I would have some issues with this site, but that's another message and another conversation. Just know that when I ran across it, I'm like, it's an interesting response to the end times and the return of Christ. It's interesting to me. Somewhat comedic, but interesting. I also stumbled upon a, a little different website. It's a Wikipedia site it's a little more factual, and what they do is they actually have collected and are collecting the various false predictions of Christ's return. It's quite interesting. In fact, they went all the way back to the first century and tried to find and collect all the false predictions, and they've even taken the ones that were, they consider to be what we call far future, so they put the first 10 centuries, what they call the first millennium, together. And then they took centuries 11 through 15, put them together. And then they went century by century, and they actually list, they itemize who made the false prediction, what they said, the, the outcome, and what happened. And it's very intriguing. You would think maybe after like just a few double-digit false predictions that it would lower, right? Oddly, in the uh, 1 to 19th centuries... Most of the predictions averaged around the teens. We hit the 20th century, 76. And so far in the 21st century, we're already at 21. By the way, there are 16 just for the 21st, excuse me, 22nd century and beyond. Now, in all frankness, that's an intriguing list of amazingly odd. Moreover irrational and unbiblical ways to respond to the end times. I would much rather go to the Word and grab Peter's list of how to respond to the end times. So what do you say we do that this morning? It's in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Take your Bibles and turn there, would you? And what we have here are not irrational or um, clickbait type of responses. What well, we have here really are rational, sound, biblical ways to respond to the fact that we are in the end times and Christ is coming soon. Now we'll be looking at these five verses over the next three weeks. I just want to take the first verse today. We're going to see over the next three weeks that Peter really calls us to five things during the end times. We're to pray, we're to love, we're to share, we're to speak, and we're to serve. I just want to talk about the first one today. In fact, in all pastoral transparency, I wanted to talk about just the first part of the first one today because it's so packed with dynamite theological truth. But I knew we need to get through at some point all five of these. So we're going to tackle the first one today and see more about what Peter said about this posture of praying in a specific manner and living in that way as well in light of the end time. So I want to walk you through the verse phrase by phrase, unpack the, the nuggets of truth in there, have you meditate and just kind of chew on those with me. We'll make just a simple observation about what this looks like in life and then we'll actually practice it before we leave. You ready? Here's the verse in our view today. It's 1 Peter 4, 7. In fact, we're just in one verse, so can we just read this together out loud? From the screen, from your Bible, here's 1 Peter 4, 7, together with Passion Church. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's take the first phrase, shall we? The end of all things is at hand. Now, in one sense, Peter is embarking on a new paragraph, somewhat of a new thought. And yet, in another sense, he's hearkening back to something he has already mentioned. And that's the idea that that Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. Put a finger on verse 5 or put your eyes there. You see, Peter has already mentioned the idea of Christ returning and that this return is is imminent. That's what's meant by the word ready and that's universal. Notice he'll do the living and the dead. So... Peter's aware that judgment's in his uh, way of thinking. And so I think he goes into talking about this this moment when Christ does return, and he does judge the living and the dead, and he says that that's what's at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Because Peter knows that the the, the return of Christ marks the end of God's redemptive agenda. The word end there is the word completion, it's the word telos. It's the culmination. And he's saying, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, it marks the end of everything God's been doing. Now, notice something about this phrase. It's not written from a human historical perspective. It's written from a divine perspective. Peter sees what's happening through the lens of, of God's view. And so his perspective is... What is God up to? What's he been doing? What's his redemptive agenda? And is that coming to a close? And Peter says, we are at the end of that. The words at hand mean drawing near, very close. So I want to spend some time on this phrase. I'll spend less time on the other two, but this is is very important. And this is packed with, with just lots of nuggets. So take some good notes here and chew with me really well, okay? I think you'll find that you'll end up at the same place I have, Lord willing, as we think about this phrase, the end of all things is hand. What Peter's really referring to is that all that God has been doing is now drawing to a close. And we say he's been doing in regards to his redemptive agenda to reconcile sinners unto himself. Can I walk you through that, that meta-narrative for a moment just by itemizing those things for you? Creation, fall. Then the call of Abraham which is the line or the seed through which the Messiah, the Savior, would come. And of course, there's the exodus, the moment in which they were delivered, our picture of redemption. And then, of course, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, God's initial people on the earth. That's the people through which Christ would come. The seed would come through Abraham, of course. And then, of course, they disobeyed, and there was this captivity, and then there was the return God's grace being shown to them. Of course, through the prophets during that period and the working of God over hundreds of years, it all culminated then in all of that being fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the Messiah. So all of that pointed to the Messiah. He came in historical time and space, the God-man. And then he ascended after his resurrection. Upon his ascension, it was the pin of the hand grenade... The Holy Spirit then descended, sent by the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit empowered all the believers, and the church was birthed, and from that point forward, the church went through to every corner of the world. This is what Acts records, sharing the gospel, completing the Great Commission, of which we participate now. That's the meta-narrative. That's what's happened in the Bible. The letters after Acts are the letters written to the churches in Acts. And so we are in this time frame that all of God's redemptive agenda has been accomplished. The gospel's being spread to the ends of the earth so that all men will come to repentance. All women will come to repentance. And we're waiting for the last culminating event, the return of Christ. That's what he means by the end of all things is at hand. And when Christ returns, it will be on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're told to pray. So in one sense, when Christ instructed in his prayer how we're to pray, he was saying, pray for the return to come quickly and soonly, soon. So that, that there is a consummation to what he inaugurated. Now, we've used those words a lot. We talked about the already but not yet tension that we live in. That's a kind of a common phrase if you've been in our church for a few years. Here's two words that we've used as well that would be in the same vein. The kingdom was inaugurated when Christ came. It began, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Some of the similar language. The return of Christ, his second coming, remember his first coming? His second coming actually will consummate that kingdom. It will bring to an end God's redemptive agenda, and then will establish his kingdom and eternity, what we call the eternal state. What Peter here is referring to essentially, I repeat myself again for the sake of making sure we learn. What Peter is discussing is the completion of God's redemptive agenda. And that will occur when Christ returns. You could say it like this. The end of the last days will occur when Christ returns. Or you could say it like this. The end of the end times will occur when Christ returns. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, are we in the end times? You ever had someone ask you that? And they ask it in that way, like there's a secret angle to get on it. Like, hey, is it the last days? Here's my answer. It's always been this way. I've always said, we are. We've been in them since Pentecost. There's no secret here. You're not working an angle. You don't have some uh, hidden type of information. In fact, it was Peter who wrote this epistle who said in Acts 2, that what they were seeing, remember when they shared the gospel at Pentecost and 3,000 were saved and the Holy Spirit came and filled all the believers, the beginning of the church? Those who were looking at that thought that they were drunk because it was only nine in the morning. And Peter stood up and said, no, no, you're not witnessing drunkenness. You're witnessing the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 when God predicted that in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all men. Since Pentecost and until Christ returns, we're in the last days. That's what we are living in. The question is, when will they end? Because we don't know that, we want to follow in the same pattern and, and, and continue in the behavior that was modeled by the very first apostles and New Testament leaders and scriptural writers—we're gonna follow in that pattern and just keep preaching repentance and belief in Jesus. You see, as I read the Book of Acts, I'm I'm struck every time I read through it by how courageous and bold those first pastors were. Like knowing that they were in the end times, that Christ was coming again. That they knew we don't know when that'll be, so we've got to preach repentance. We've got to preach the gospel. We've got to get to where it's not been shared. And you'll find the word repentance throughout Acts, and you'll find the fact that they're testifying to the truth of the resurrection, and they're calling for men and and women everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And guess what? Here now in the 21st century, that needs to be the posture and practice of the church. So can I today, pastorally, in light of Christ's return and the fact that we are in the end times, call Anyone who is yet to believe in Jesus to a posture of repentance and belief in Jesus, God's son. You say, well, what does that look like, Todd? Well, maybe at this very moment, you're realizing that you've never trusted Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's opening your heart and your eyes this morning to the reality, to the truth, that there's a God who made you. And you've sinned against him, and so you're separated from him. But you know there's no way to cross that chasm, that cavern of sin on your own. You're forever, eternally in a predicament, but God sent his son Jesus to cross the bridge for you on the cross, and the word of God tells us clearly from God's own mouth that whoever believes in Christ, repents of their sin and confesses him as Lord, God saves through Jesus. In other words, he forgives your sin, he reconciles you to himself, he makes you his child. That's called salvation, being saved or being rescued, forgiven, justified, you're adopted into his family. All of that occurs because of God's work through Christ on your behalf. And all God asks for is for you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning you're realizing, I've never believed on Jesus. But if we are near the end, and the next event is the return of Christ who will judge the living and the dead, I want to be ready for that. Then I have just one admonition for you. Trust Christ this morning. In your seat right now, just pray this to God. And it's not a prayer that saves you. It's not a place that saves you. It's the posture of the heart. But it can be represented in words like this. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and am forever lost without your saving work through Jesus. So I believe that Jesus is your son who lived, died, rose again I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. God, would you save me through Jesus? And God will, at that moment, give you eternal life. And watch this, church. You'll be ready for the end times. Because they are at hand. They're upon us. Now, a few more side nuggets about this phrase. Again, it's the longest that I want to spend is on this phrase. But I want to just kind of encourage us some more in regards to this. We talked about how Peter talks about it, even how he talked about it in Acts. Uh, He wasn't the only one to discuss the end times or the last days. Jesus also discussed it with his disciples, including Peter. Uh, Peter, in fact, was one of the ones who asked about the end times. They were looking at the temple one day. And so Peter says, hey, what's the sign that this thing's coming down? And of the end of the age? like, tell us when this is going to happen. So they're asking the same thing. We're asking, hey, when's the end of the age? All right, is this the last days? They're asking. So Jesus in Mark 14, excuse me, Mark 13 and Matthew 24, he does talk a, a lot about the end times. And here's what he says in general, that basically it's going to be a time of increasing persecution, intense distress, inevitable apostasy, and great tribulation. And let us be quick to say that this is what they witnessed between about 30 A.D., ascension of christ and 70 a.d the destruction of the temple that's when the bulk of the new testament was written and that's when the a lot of persecution and suffering and martyrdom occurred more continued but for sure it started there so what jesus said in those chapters was actually coming historically true then but what he said about them is quite intriguing because he used one phrase at the beginning that helps us understand these end times he said These are but the beginning of birth pains. Are you listening to me? You catching me? Jesus said about those years with his disciples, they're the beginning of birth pains. Meaning, he's kind of using the metaphor of uh, of labor and delivery. You're pregnant, let's say, for nine months. And you know it gets increasingly obvious and increasingly evident. And then you even, as a woman, you begin to feel that. And at some point, then you give birth. The last days, the end times, are like that. They started at Pentecost. I don't know how long the nine months are, but we can see the increasing intensity. We can see evidence that it's happening. At some point, the delivery will occur, which is Christ's return. And so, in this time, we're just kind of waiting, we're watching, we're working. We can expect things to get more difficult. More evidential, more hostile. Are you, are you tracking with me? This is all that Peter's saying. He was aware of it from Christ's teaching. He taught it to these Christians, and we are still in the same flow of being aware of it. We don't know when the delivery will occur, but there's nothing left to happen. The redemptive agenda has been accomplished. The end of all things is at hand. And what's next? is Christ's return. This is why, church, the New Testament closes with this prayer, Revelation 22. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Say it with me, church. Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's the next culminating, and I might add, closing event to God's redemptive agenda. And when that occurs, I don't believe there'll be another opportunity to be born again. Do you see why it is paramount that we take the Great Commission seriously? And not just seek to build a place with these four walls that's comfortable, but to build an embassy that equips people to be sent into hostile territory as ambassadors Amen. for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Amen. So that all will hear, believe, and be ready for these end times. Let me just say one more word about this first phrase. You can see why I wanted to preach just on this for the whole time. It's just so rich, isn't it? Here's an interesting uh, last word about this. There's a, there's a two-word phrase for this whole concept of the end of all things. It's called eschatological hope. Can you say those two big words with me? Eschatological hope. Kind of make sound like you're a seminary student, right? It's just a $10 word to kind of help us get our hands around This fact that there is an order of things from God's perspective. That's the point of the word eschatology. There's an order of events. It's not based on man or who's president or who's the dictator or what country is the greatest or who has the most money. It's based on God's redemptive agenda and the church said amen. When God's finished, we'll be finished. Until then, we're not. And so eschatological hope means this, that there is an order of events that's occurring... And it ends with the return of Christ, and that's hope filled. Does it bring sobriety to us and a sense of seriousness when we realize that when He comes, repentance opportunities are over? There's the judgment of the living and the dead? Yes, that's sobering. But guess what else it means? Every tear wiped away, every wrong righted, every sorrow gone. Every disease, every illness disappeared, every human body of a believer made whole and glorified. Can we just rejoice that while it is sobering and serious, there is hope at the end of our eschatology. Amen, church? So we call it eschatological hope. And I just got one response to this two-word phrase and all we've said so far about this one first phrase, and that is hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So know, first of all, that Peter says in light of verse 5 and kind of the sense of the text that there is an end coming. It's drawing near. It's the return of Christ. It culminates God's redemptive agenda. In light of that, how should we be? What should we do? How should we live? That's the next phrase. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And of course, he introduces this with the word, therefore. So we realize he's building upon the fact that the end times are here. They're at hand. We're in the last days. So guess what? Be self-controlled and sober-minded. This is why I think it's interesting to find those who have irrational responses, who encourage their followers to move to a foreign country, who encourage folks to maybe go somewhere and wear white robes on top of a mountain. Those are irrational responses. The Bible actually says in light of the end, we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's a different kind of lifestyle for those who are believers who know they're in the end times and waiting for the return of Christ. Now, I want to take these two words individually first. Then I'll take them collectively. It won't take very long. Just, Just watch me. I want to talk about the content of the two words. Okay? Take some notes here, would you? Self-control just means to be clear-minded, of a sound mind. It means to have the right state of mind so you can make a good judgment. It means really what it says. You're self-controlled. You're kind of, you have a, a grip and a grasp on what's going on. To be sober-minded means to be alert. Uh, in fact, it means to watch. This is the word used in the King James translation, I believe. Same word used in the Gospels. And the disciples were told to watch. So it means to have a, a very um, alert mindset and posture. Uh, it means to be disciplined, restrained, clear-headed, not drunk. This word here especially would contrast with two things. One's in Ephesians where it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's there saying, don't be uncontrolled. Don't be non-sober, irrational, it also is contrasted with how the pagans pray. If you look at Matthew 6, he tells, he tells us they're to pray in our closet in a secret way. Or when we pray, not to just keep repeating ourselves in front of the Father, uh, you know, like we're going to convince him with more words. He says this is how the, the, the Pharisees, the pagans, the hypocrites pray. They just get into an irrational state of frenzy. They say the same thing over and over and over. They kind of work themselves up thinking they can convince their gods to do what they say. This is the word that's opposite of that. Like you don't need to act irrational, uncontrolled. Be controlled, sober, uh, restrained, clear-headed. If I had to give you two other words that I think would mirror these, I would say Peter's calling us here in these end times to being clear and controlled. And that's the content of the words. But I don't think Peter's intent is to get you to think about two words. I think Peter's intent is to get you to think about one posture. And I'm going to give you the word that I think best describes the end times posture for believers that does affect our prayers. It's the posture of discipline. Now, with all you have in you, try to say that word with me. Discipline. Come on, you can do better than that. Can we say it? discipline it's, it's not a four-letter word. You can, you can muster this up, right? I know it's not our favorite word. Much of our country is done with discipline. But it actually is, I think, the best word to describe the posture Peter is after in the phrase self-controlled and sober-minded. In fact, let me give you some reasoning for that just briefly. Not only are these two words virtually synonymous... Even when you define them, you find yourself repeating yourself in the definition. So they're virtually synonymous. But watch this. If you take these two words, they're used probably eight to ten times throughout the New Testament. They're interchangeable. They mean much the same thing at different times. They're used differently still. Uh, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Titus. I think there's two other times in 1 Peter they're used. Also in 2 Timothy to that young pastor. And in, in those cases, the idea of discipline, of sobriety, uh, it's, it's the real thrust of the context, that of control. Can I use even the word restraint? So I'm very comfortable saying discipline when you combine them both, that discipline's really kind of like in Peter's head. He's thinking, Have live a disciplined life. See, listen, church, these words here, they may mean more in this context, but they cannot mean less than they mean in the other parts of Scripture. And in the other eight ish references, this is the general meaning. So we have to say to ourselves well, he's aiming again at this idea of a disciplined lifestyle. Second reason is this discipline is not a new concept to the New Testament, whether it be for the individual or the church. Now, I'm going to make several connecting points here, so follow me. Don't lose me, okay? Not only are pastors called to be disciplined, Titus records that uh, Paul called young men to be disciplined, young housewives, older men, and older women to be disciplined. Same word, sober, controlled. Furthermore, collectively, this is really Paul's instruction when he's correcting spiritual gift abuse in the church at Corinth. Now, the word may not be used, but watch this with me. Reason with me on this. When Paul's describing the public use of certain gifts, namely, speaking or praying in tongues, and then prophecy, he provides some guardrails and parameters. He, in essence, puts in disciplined uh, fences, Such as this. If someone's speaking in tongues or praying in tongues and there's no interpreter, the person should not speak or pray in tongues. It's it's clear cut in the New Testament. What's Paul doing? He's not denigrating praying in tongues. He's saying there must be an interpreter because what good is a confusing message to the body? So we need discipline in the use of our gifts to make sure there's overall edification, Same thing is true for prophecy. He says the prophets should not speak over each other, and they should be willing to let their prophecies be weighed by other prophets, the elders as well, to test them. Why? Because what good is a conflicting message to the body? So so hear this. Without discipline, the guardrails, in regards to even spiritual gifts, the body would be left with confusing and conflicting messages. What prevents that is discipline. Discipline. Asking, "Is there an interpreter?" And if not, say, "No offense, but can you be seated?" Uh, is there another prophet that we can test this word by? And is there agreement? Is it agree with the word of God? Is, are you with me? That takes discipline. So I just want to say to you, discipline, though it often seems odd to us in our indulgent society. It's actually a common New Testament concept, both in the church and in the life of the Christian. So Peter here, I believe, is calling again for something that was common to them, both collectively and individually, in light of end times, live with discipline. Now you may say, well, Todd, in this text, what should the discipline point to? I'm glad you asked. Let's answer that as we look at our last phrase. He says here, be disciplined for the sake of your prayers. Or simply put, so you can pray. Now as we close in a minute, I'll give you an illustration of how this didn't happen. But for now, just know that Peter's asserting that it takes discipline, sobriety, control, rational thinking... In these end times, so you can pray. And by the way, he's not saying that we're to be controlled and clear and disciplined so that our prayers are this way. Are you with me? It's not prayers that are disciplined. That's in some sense like an inanimate thing. Watch this now. It's the prayers that are disciplined. Are you with me? So don't think that you're you're trying to adopt a lifestyle so that you can produce like, oh, I've... I've got disciplined prayers over here in this box. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you get on me and say it like this for the sake of you prayers. So we want to be disciplined so that we can pray. We don't want to be irrational, out of control, undisciplined, because then we can't pray. The truth is at those moments we fear, we worry, we doubt, we disbelieve, we blame. But when we're rational, controlled, discerning, we can pray. This is what Peter says that a lifestyle of discipline enables us to have disciplined prayer. I think this gets, generally speaking, to the real heart of what God says matters to His people, and that is prayer. Church, can I reaffirm to you once again? Prayer is our first and best action. It is not our only action, but it is our first and best, and you do nothing greater than pray. Our culture wants you to feel like that's an exclusive option. Like, well, if I'm praying, I can't do anything else. And if I'm doing something else, I can't pray. Like, is prayer really, listen, you can do other things. That's fantastic. Do them. But you can do nothing greater than pray because when you pray, you're asking God to work on your behalf. To do things that if you had every hour of the day and all the might in the world, you could not do. But God can. He can heal, rescue Deliver, save, restore, calm, activate, initiate, energize. God can do all of these when you can't. So should you and could you do a lot of things? Yes, and feel free to. But by all means, pray. It is your first and best action. And in this text, he's saying there's a certain kind of praying That really matters. In light of the end times, it's disciplined praying. Now, maybe you're wondering what that looks like, this kind of disciplined praying. We may even say disciplined living that results then in disciplined praying. Let me give you some one-word synonyms for the idea of praying with a discipline, living with discipline. These are kind of, you know, molded into one kind of posture, We could even call these, uh, for those of you who have been here for a few years, these are Todd's one-word tips today, okay? So here's a few one-word tips, some synonyms for what this verse is aiming at. Evaluative. Alert. Aware. Sensible. Assessing. Discerning. Rational. See, I've used those words throughout the message. Again, Peter's aiming at one thing here, a posture, a lifestyle of discipline that enables you to see what's around you in light of the end times and pray effectively. That is what he's asking you to pray about. He's asking you to pray about what's around you in light of the end times. Let it affect you to the point that you're self-controlled, you're sober-minded, and then pray in the same way with the discipline. Now, I call this 360-praying. A lot of you have heard of 360 feedback. You try to garner input from, you know, all directions. I think Peter here is calling for 360 praying. Look all around you, your head on a swivel. You're seeing what's around you, and then in light of that, you want to have a rational, controlled, biblically-based, God-led, spirit-empowered response, and so you pray in that fashion. I'd remind you, Paul talked to us about 24-7 praying, didn't he? He said, pray without ceasing. So Paul kind of gave us 24-7 praying. Peter here has given us 360 praying. While you're praying at all times, put your head on a swivel and just notice, evaluate, be alert to, discern, assess all that's around you and pray in the same manner because we are near the end. Let me try to give you a simple handle to use to take home this verse. It's 12 words. It's not a whole lot shorter than the verse, to be honest with you. You can just memorize the verse and take it home with you. That's the best option. But in the vein of how we normally preach, here's a simple take-home truth for you that I think will encapsulate really what we've been after in these three phrases and kind of our exegesis today of it. The culminating of God's plan compels us to discipline living and praying. Now, will you say this with me together? The culminating of God's plan compels us to disciplined living and pray. And what I've been praying this week is that, first of all, there will be people who hear this who, who are not even Christian, but will for the first time realize judgment's on the way. And a loving God has given you a Savior who will save you from that judgment. And that today you'll repent and turn to God. That you will see the value and the treasure of Jesus. But also in praying for Christians who live indulgently, selfishly, undisciplined. And that whether it's regarding your time, your priorities, your money, your investments, your relationships, you'll begin to live more disciplined in light of eternity and just what's next, which is Christ's return. You'll have a sobriety about how you spend your money, about how you spend your time in and who you relate to and, and your hobbies and what you do and where you go, how you raise your kids and where you point them and the trajectory of your whole family's, you know, direction of your life, like all of that. Like, okay, how does how does the discipline now come into my life knowing that it's the end times and Christ's return is next, and I'm to pray in the same way? How can I live that way? So my prayer is the same way. I'm praying that God will just really weigh in on us with the need for. Clear-mindedness, sobriety, discipline. Now with this circulating in your head and percolating in your heart, I want to close with an illustration that I think will not only clarify what it looks like, but I think it will elevate the importance of this verse. Would you recall with me the three disciples who went with Jesus into the interior part of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, was James, John, and Peter. Hold that thought. They're in the garden with Jesus the night before his most crucial moments. I mean, he's facing his most severe suffering. His critical hours just lay ahead. He's got three of his best friends in the inner part of the garden. He says to them one thing, pray. Pray. Interesting, isn't it? When the hour was the darkest, at the most critical moment, Christ says to his disciples, pray. He said it like this, Mark, I think it's uh, 14, about verse 37. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. The word watch is the same word used here. What Peter heard in Mark 14, he wrote in 1 Peter 1. Watch Jesus said this to Peter watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Well, that was Christ's call to them to be alert, aware, engaged, discerning, and rational, to have a 360 kind of uh, mindset as they were praying that night, to think, to evaluate, to prepare, to pray with discipline. But what did they do? They slept. (laughs) And what was the next result? Can I be so bold to you as to say it was two wrong responses, especially on the part of Peter. Peter chose violence first. Remember, he took the sword, went after Malchus. He chose violence. When Jesus said, put the sword away, he chose denial. Now think with me, church. Could it be, I'm just asking the question, could it be, That Peter's first two wrong responses were the result of not praying with discipline when he was told to. Now by God's grace, that wasn't his final response. Amen? But let's admit, it was his initial one. And so now when Peter is writing to these believers here about 20, 30 years later... And they're going through seasons of suffering for righteousness' sake. That's kind of the point of the book. He exhorts them very pointedly and succinctly to do what he actually failed to do. And it cost him in the immediate. He doesn't want them to experience that same cost or loss. And so he says to them years later what he heard Jesus say to him pray with discipline, watch, be alert, the end is near. I think in his mind and his heart, he's thinking, I don't want you to make two wrong responses. I don't want you to go for the sword or deny. So readers of the first century, these elect exiles, these love strangers, pray with discipline. Live with discipline. This is what's necessary in light of the end times. So can we practice for just a few moments? this very thing. I want to leave us for a few moments to do exactly this. We're going to draw a circle around our chair. and We're going to pray. Watch this. With discipline and for discipline. We're going to pray with alertness and for alertness. We're going to ask God to look at everything around us and give us discernment, insight, An evaluative sense of what's going on so that we can live in light of what is next, the return of Christ, and make the best use of our time, relationships, finances, investments, uh, opportunities. I'm praying that this time of prayer, just for a few moments, will not only prepare us for communion, but will be a, a runway for you to begin to pray this way on a regular basis. Because this is what Peter says to do. Can I read the verse for you one more time? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Can you go to prayer with me now? All of our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's put into practice what the Bible is saying to us today. Draw that circle around your chair, would you? Regardless of who you're with or the children next to you or the spouse, can you for a moment just enter into that personal sanctuary best you can? I'm going to walk you through some things to pray for and how to pray, and then I'm going to leave you to pray just for a few minutes on your own. I'll be quiet. During that time when I'm not speaking, you're praying. If you'd like prayer from one of our leaders, just lift your hand up as well. This is a completely free moment for God's people to pray as His people and to pray for His people. So perhaps God's going to bring to your mind some things that are troubling or trying or tempting. He'll bring to mind people, situations, needs. He's doing that right now in this room. Will you pray for them? Will you ask God to give you discernment, alertness, an evaluative heart, a discerning mind? Will you watch and pray in this moment? Perhaps you want to ask the Lord for things that are ahead of you. Lord, is this an enticement or an entrustment? Lord, what are the detours that Satan wants to use to get me off track? Lord, where are the landmines that I'm not aware of yet? It's these kinds of questions, these, the, these kinds of um, requests, you are to lay before the Lord with all that's around you. Ask Him for discernment. Pray with discernment. Be alert in this moment. So I'm going to leave you to that for just a few more minutes. If you'd like prayer, we've got elders and elders' wives, our staff and their spouses, deacons and deacons' wives. We've got our prayer team men and women who are available. I'll just ask those people if you would just kind of keep your head up a little bit or maybe even stand up near the outside walls, maybe to the front. If you see a hand go up and you would like to go pray, they'll lay a hand on your shoulders, all they'll do. They'll intercede for you. They may not know all that's going on, You're welcome to share that with them, but just trust the Holy Spirit to intercede for you with words which we can't even express. So church, you're praying, and we're available to pray for you. I see a hand on my right over here. Travis, can I have you just assist Isaac for a moment? Staff, elders, deacons, their wives, men and women to me. Just kind of keep your head up and looking around. Right now, would you mind praying with Sally right here? Yeah, No shame. But just hold your hand up. Keep it up till someone comes to pray with you. That'd be awesome. This is what we do, church. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate that. There's a man down here. Stan, could you help me on the lower right here, Jim? And to my left, there's a couple of hands up. Sherry, would you mind just moving over to Abigail and praying right there? I appreciate that. Thank you. I know some of you have your hands up. Just hang with us and be patient. We've got some folks moving around. Amen. Amen. Casey, there's a lady back in the back on the middle. Jamie, you might pray with her. Thank you. Yeah, leaders, keep your head kind of up and looking around. I appreciate that. Just help me here a bit. It's so sweet to see and hear God's people praying for one another. This is precisely what Peter called for.